This isn't instructive text. This is descriptive text. This is telling the history. It's telling the history of someone. It's telling a story. And it's because that story leads ultimately to the Messiah. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Father God, thank you for the journey we're about to embark on. Thank you that we get to be together going through your word and going through your scriptures. I'm thankful that it's not always easy, that sometimes the subject is tough, and uh, I hope that we can learn from what you have in store for us tonight. God, help us to walk away from this in love with you more, um, with a deeper understanding of who you are and your desires. And just help us get through this study in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Let's let's get into it. So it starts off with after this. So what is after this? Uh, Well, that really is what we talked about last week. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He killed her husband Uriah then married her, was confronted by Nathan the prophet. He had a son die. He had a new son born in Solomon. And then he finally joined the battle he should have been a part of this whole time. And he goes out and the city is fully captured. And David takes the crown and he extends the land of Israel even more once he finally joins the battle he should have been participating in for a year. And now it says, after all of this, and that's important because they're telling us that this is related to what just happened. Because David's failure trickles through his family. His sons learn horrible behavior from dad. And, um, you know, as someone who is freshly a parent, this is probably the thing that scares me the most. What bad habit will Kara learn from me? that she can turn back around and say, I got it from you, Dad. Um, Because this is what this is about. They got this from David. So chapter 13, verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. It's an interesting use of the word love as you go through this story, but in Hebrew, 
the word love is similar to the word love in English, where we have one word that describes lots of different feelings and emotions. Um, you know, you might love ice cream or Skittles. You might love your vehicle. You might love your house. You might love your husband or wife. Those words are used very differently, but it's one word. Unlike Greek, where it's much more specific into the specific relationship that you have with the object you're saying you love, because there's multiple words in Greek to deal with these emotions and feelings. But in Hebrew, much like English, this word is used not in the way that you might have read that. So he loved her. Really, he was infatuated with her. Um, not uncommon in the ancient world for there to be forms of incest, but it was against the law in terms of Jewish law. Verse 2, Amnon was so distressed over his sister, Tamar, that he became sick. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So he is infatuated with her, and he can't stop thinking about her, and he's making himself sick over it. But Amnon had a friend, which you'll see how much of a friend this guy is, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah. David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. So these are the characters we've got so far. King David, he's got his oldest son, Amnon, his third oldest son, Absalom, his daughter, Tamar, who happens to be the full sister of Absalom, the half-sister and half-brother of Amnon, and Jonadab, David's nephew, or Amnon, cousin. So a lot of family, a lot of characters, and we're only three verses in. So Jonadab says to Amnon, he said to him, why are you, the, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? He's going, what? You are, you're living the palace, you're living the royal life. Really, what is being held from you that's making you so sick? Why don't you look well? He notices. So Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Interesting that he doesn't say my sister. It is his half-sister. They share the same father. They have different mothers. But <clears throat> he's looking for justification and reason to fulfill his infatuation. So Jonadab said to him, this is the bad advice he gives him. This is his cousin. He says, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food, and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon laid down, pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes. <clears throat> Make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So Amnon takes Jonadab's advice, and he lays down in his bed. He pretends to be sick, and David falls for it. And he probably falls for it because he already kind of looked sick because of what he was putting himself through with this infatuation. So much so that this is what kick-started the conversation with Jonadab. He looked ill because of what was going on in the turmoil he had in his, in his own mind and heart. 
So David falls for it. He probably feels really bad for him, and he misses what's happening right in front of his face. And he capitulates to this request. Verse 7, David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. This is unusual because in, in this time, daughters of the king particularly, daughters in general, but daughters of the king in particular, um, who were not married yet and virgins, would have been kept separate from everyone as much as possible. They really protected them and made sure that their purity was of the highest concern. And so this is unusual, and Amnon figures out a way to get her alone. And so she took the pan and placed them out before him, and he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into my bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar cooked the, took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. So you can see the steps. This guy's been making himself sick over this infatuation. He gets advice. He's starting to make justifications. He's trying to not call her his sister. And he's got this ploy, and now he's got her alone, and now he's bringing her even into the more intimate space of his room and saying, come here and feed me. Verse 11, now when she had brought them to him to eat the, the cakes of bread that she made, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And now this isn't like a come be comforting to me, come sit next to me. He is offering a proposal of intimacy. He, is, he, he wants to sleep with her in the more derogatory fashion. But she answered him, no. Good answer. My brother, do not force me. No such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. She's saying no. And she's trying to knock sense into him. But he is not listening. Verse 13, and I... Where could I take my shame? And as for you, would you be like one of the fools in Israel? Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So now she's looking for anything she can do to stop this from happening. And she's saying, what, just go to the king. Ask him. He won't keep me from you. I'm in the royal line. He'll allow you to marry me, and we don't have to do this in sin. And that's not really going to work because it is against the Jewish law for them to do this, but she's really trying to get out of the situation. She's trying to talk some sense into him, trying to make him not do something he is going to regret. She's trying to keep her purity, keep her cleanliness, um, and she's trying to get out of a situation in which she is very uncomfortable. However, verse 14, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she is, he forced her and lay with her. So this is not uh, an easy thing to talk about. Amnon raped his half-sister. And then, verse 15, Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than with the love he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Now, this isn't fun to talk about, but this is 
what happened. He had an infatuation with her, and he allowed it to cloud his mind and cloud his judgment. And in psychology, with males in particular, we have a tendency to idealize women. Whenever we start to become infatuated or fall down that road where we start to fall in love, so we think. Um, and this is, you know, this is true of, of you know, my, my experience with Juliet. You know, I couldn't see any imperfections. Everything with her was so perfect. Once we started to date and I finally gave in to this idea of pursuing marriage and that we idealized the women. Um, but he took it to an unhealthy level. He chose to have zero discipline in his life and to use force and to follow his animalistic instincts and allow his flesh to rule over him instead of his spirit. And when he did that, he achieved the prize he was looking for, and afterward, he had defiled the person whom he viewed as perfect. And now, all he sees is that perfection is gone, and it's his fault. And so the, the hatred that he has for ruining the perfect picture in his head is on himself and her, and he places all of the violence and, and hurt on her, and he tells her to just leave, and he hates her because of it. This is a horrible example of what happens in humanity. This is, we were talking about this, Dan and I, a little bit about the flesh and this idea of what is Christianity in comparison to the world in a lot of ways. Now, ultimately, it's how our sin is taken care of and how we reconcile with God, uh, and that's what the whole story of the scriptures is about. But part of the actions of Christianity is to resist the flesh. And in Judaism, in ancient Judaism, the covenant was circumcision, literally cutting away the flesh, setting themselves apart from the world through cutting away of the flesh, through resisting the flesh. Because as we'll get down the road into Proverbs, you'll see resisting the flesh is often wise, and wisdom leads to types of prosperity and joy down the road with a sacrifice in the beginning. I have to sacrifice what I want, what I desire in the flesh now, so that I can receive blessing and joy down the road. But the world is, and the flesh is all about instant gratification, and instant gratification feels good in the moment, and then you're dealing with the circumstance afterwards, and all of the repercussions afterwards. And this is an example. Amnon could not contain his, well, he could have. He didn't contain his flesh. He didn't utilize discipline. He didn't hold out for the best things. And he received something that he wanted in the immediate and then afterwards hated himself. And he took that hatred out on Tamar, whom he claimed that he loved at one point. You can see that that's not really the case. He loved himself, he loved his flesh, and he wanted to experience the pleasures of the flesh. And then he felt guilty. So sin comes with immediate gratification, 
followed by regret and consequence. Making wise choices comes with a sacrifice up front with long-term blessing, joy, and peace. And that's the difficult, it's a difficult sell to tell people to resist what you want in the here and now to have something better later. That's why we have credit card debt. That's why in this economy of crazy inflation, record numbers of credit cards are being taken out because people would rather get what they want now and pay more later and suffer the consequences down the road so that they can have what they want in their flesh now rather than find a way to sacrifice now to live within the means so that you can have more later without being a slave to the lender. This is, I'd much rather talk about that, but let's get back into the story. Because <laughs> it's not, this isn't fun. Rise, be gone. So she said to him, no, indeed, this evil of sending, him, sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. So, not, so she said, you took away my purity. She, she was raped by Amnon, but being sent away now means that she'd basically be announcing to the world what had been done to her and that she'd been defiled. And now she's not really up for marriage to be completed and fulfilled. She has been, that has been erased by this guy. And him sending her away is a double curse on her now. And so she's saying, no, why would you do that to me? That's even worse than what you already did. And what he already did is about as bad as it gets. But he wouldn't listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. She even had a special garb related to the fact of her purity and now she's wearing it in disgrace as she's kicked out of Amnon's room because of what he did to her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her, laid her hand on her head, and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate, in her brother Absalom's house. <clears throat> so this is what's going on. Absalom saw her. She had torn the coat that was representative of her purity. And so he kind of had a guess of what was going on. And I'm assuming he had a better understanding and a better idea of what was going on than David. He might have known Amnon better. He might have spent more time with him because of David's responsibility to the kingdom. And he might have known what happened. And he made an immediate guess. And Absalom takes his sister into his house for her to stay. And he takes care of her. That's pretty noble. Um, but his nobility pretty much ends there. When the king heard of all these things, he was angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Those two verses are interesting. Because David's mentioned very briefly. It says, 
When King David heard of all of these things, he was very angry, period. No more to the story. David doesn't do anything. David doesn't react. David doesn't respond. Why? Probably because this chapter starts out with these words, after these things. And the things that were spoken about were all the mistakes that David made with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he may not feel like he has much of a moral ground to stand on. Because where did Amnon learn that behavior? David. And this is part of David's most impressive failure. His most impressive failure is as a father. He's really bad at it. He's not good at it. Because um, he doesn't teach his kids. He's not really involved in their lives. He doesn't make them better people. He doesn't use his mistakes to help them springboard and, and not screw up in the same way he did. Instead, he's passive, and he doesn't do anything about it. And not only does he not do anything about it, Absalom, who's waiting for David to do something about it, his hatred grows for his brother as David remains passive. Verse 23, and it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal, Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. So he's inviting his father. It's sheep shearing season. The sons have land. They're partakers of the royal you know, they have an inheritance, they have land and livestock, and this is a celebration time. Sheep shearing is similar to harvest time for the farmers. So this is where you take in your bounty, the things you're going to sell. This is you celebrating what you've earned this year, what your work has concluded in. And so he says, it's celebration time, we're going to shear the sheep, and this is my wealth coming in, this is the harvest for me as someone who owns livestock, dad, will you come? So he says to the king. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. So David is basically saying, I'm the king. I have a lot in my household between wives, children, servants, other extended family, those who are in the palace. That's a lot of people. Son, I'm not going to do that to you. That would mean you would have to throw one huge party and you would have to waste what you've earned just to take care of all of that. How about I just bless you and we don't all go so that we're not a burden on you. We don't want to ruin the celebration. We don't want to take all the money you're going to earn from this. Enjoy your spoil. So then Absalom said, well, if, if not, please, my brother Amnon, go with us. So Absalom has been biding his time. He's been waiting and waiting to take revenge. And this is brilliant because he invites the king first. He invites David. And if David would have gone, this probably wouldn't have happened. But because David didn't go, Absalom now has his chance. And he says, well, if you can't go, send Amnon, because Amnon's the oldest son, which means he would hold be the next in line for the largest inheritance of David's kingdom. So he would be, it would be like sending the, king, the king's representative in his place. This is an out of bounds. 
This isn't weird. This isn't something David would have caught on to. He wouldn't have been suspicious at all, especially because he was already invited. And he, well, this makes sense to him. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you, be courageous and valiant. So he, he's telling his servants to kill him when he's drunk. This is also a behavior learned from David. David tried to fill Uriah with wine to convince him to go sleep with his wife so he could cover up his affair. But Uriah didn't do it, so then he had Uriah killed by the swords of other men. All of this behavior is catching up with him. Do not be afraid, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that the news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all of the king's all of uh, has killed all of the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So, uh, not true. Uh, but this is the first hearing, and the news is exaggerated. That sounds familiar. That hasn't changed. We've we've rushed. Even back then, the person wants to be the first to tell the king rather than to be accurate. Uh, and that's sort of the, still the same story with news, right? You just want to be the first one to tell the story rather than be accurate. Because that's how you sell. That's how you get clicks. So the king arose, tore his garments, and lay on the ground, and all of his servants stood by him with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother answered. <clears throat> David's nephew. David's nephew who gave Amnon the advice that started this whole thing. That guy comes to David and says, let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he forced his sister Tamar. He conveniently leaves out that that was his idea. What a snake. Politicians haven't changed in thousands of years either. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead goes and he tries to comfort David. Not all your sons are dead, just Amnon. And he's dead because of the plot with Tamar. That was my idea. Aren't you glad you have me on staff? Verse 34, Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked. And there, was, there were many people were coming from the road on the hillside were uh, on the hillside behind him, and Jonadab said this to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, and your servant said, So it is. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king said, uh, Also the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, 
king of Geshur. And David was mourned for his son every year. Now, this is something you might miss. Absalom fled because he was afraid of the justice that may rain down on him. But where did he flee to? He fleed to the king of Geshur, which happened to be his grandfather. See, David's, or Absalom's mother, David's wife, Maaka, was the daughter of the king of Geshur. This was part of his whole expanding his wives for peace treaties in the, in the surrounding lands. And uh, he goes to grandpa and he says, protect me. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and, there, and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So three years have gone by. In that time, David's heart heals from the, the loss of Amnon. I'm sure it hurt, but also legitimate justice in some way was committed because of what Amnon did. And he was comforted that at least it, he thought that all of that drama was over, and he missed Absalom. And he probably understands where Absalom is coming from. Chapter 14. So Joab the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So Joab sees that, you know, Absalom, King David misses Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning for a long time for the dead. And so Joab is taking the playbook from Nathan, He's saying, I know what'll get David to respond. I'm gonna get David to hear a narrative. And when he hears a story, he'll know that he's in the middle of it and he'll respond. And so Joab is creating sort of a parable much like Nathan did when he confronted David about his sin. He says, go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons. The two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant and said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of the brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also, so they would extinguish my, my ember that is left and leave to, my, uh, leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. So she's saying, husband's gone. I've got two kids. They fought. One killed the other. The other one ran away. And he's all that I have left. And everyone's telling me to bring the only son that I have left, all that is left to my name, to come back so that they can kill him, but he's all that I have. If I lose him, I lose everything. So the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the, to the king, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me, on my father's house and the king and the throne and his throne be guiltless. And she's saying, don't, don't put this on yourself. Put this on me. I don't, I don't want my son to be judged. I don't want you to be judged. Put this on me. So the king says, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. He's saying, you have my protection. 
That's what David is saying to this woman. So she says, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So David's heard this story. He's heard her plea and he's saying, have your son come back and I'll make sure that you're protected and he's protected and no one's allowed to kill him. And therefore the woman said, let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, go ahead, say on. And the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. He goes, oh, just like Nathan tells a story, a fictional story, and then says, this is actually about you. You're the one who has a son out in a foreign land, and you're not letting him come home. Why? For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life. He devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Well, that is a beautiful verse. I want to read it again because I want you to hear it. And I want you to hear it, think about the gospel when you hear this. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet, God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. God figures out a way so that those who are in sin can be brought to his presence. That is the gospel. But they have to walk through the door. Verse 15, now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my lord the king will now be comforting for as the angel of God, so my lord the king is discerning good and evil and may the lord your God be with you saying, your judgment upon me was merciful and good. Have the same judgment on yourself. Bring Absalom home. Verse 18, the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, please let my lord the king speak. He says, I have a question for you. The king says, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. And so he figures it out. Ah, yeah, I guess I should bring Absalom home, but I have a question for you. Was Joab behind this? And she says, yes, he was. Why do you think Joab was behind this? Joab killed Abner. A few chapters back, remember that? And David was pretty upset with him for taking the Avenger's blood. And uh, it looks like Joab is either doing one of two things. He's trying to make things right with David, trying to get back on his good side, show him that he's changed. Or Joab is trying to bring peace between Absalom and David because he thinks Absalom's going to be the next one to be in the throne. And if he's the one responsible for him coming back to Israel to take the throne, then he's improved 
his rank with the next king. Uh, so it's, it's selfish both ways, but uh, you know one of those outcomes might be a little bit easier to understand, that he's trying to make amends with David. I don't know which one it is. Um, I'm more likely to lean that it's probably trying to improve his rank with Absalom uh, because Joab was not historically known for his thoughtful behavior for others. Verse 20, to bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So David, he's convinced to bring him back, but he still won't see him. Still won't forgive him. He won't kill him but he won't see him. And that's where we leave off. This is our last verse for today. We'll finish out um, the rest of this chapter and, and more next week. But this is a horrible story. We have, there, there's, there's rape, incest, murder, uh, political corruption. All of this just sprinkled throughout this whole story. Why is it here? What is the point? What is this all about? Now, there are certainly things you can learn from it about what not to do. You don't want to act like any of these people. When you make a mistake like David, it's better to own it for your kids so that they can learn from your mistakes and not fall into the same traps. If you fall into those traps, it's best to learn how to have discipline so that you don't fulfill the infatuation or lust that's in your heart. It's better to be a parent who's involved than passive. You can learn that from all of this, that's true. But this is where I think we miss the mark. Because we always look, for, it's not a bad idea to look for principles in the Bible. It's not. It's a good thing to do. It's a good idea to look for principles. It's a good idea to figure out how God would want you to live your life. It's a good idea to figure out what God's moral authority says and what you should do or not do. But that's not the story of Scripture. That's not what Scripture is about. This is an instructive text. This is descriptive text. This is telling the history. It's telling the history of someone. It's telling a story. And it's because that story leads ultimately to the Messiah. The failures of David, the failures of Amnon, the failure of Absalom, and so on, ultimately lead to Solomon being the one who gets chosen for the throne. Because right now, all we know about the Messiah is that he comes from the lineage of David, but David has 20 kids, at, at least more, 20 sons. So which way is this royal line going to go? This story, as much as there are things you can learn from it, these stories are about really getting to figure out who the Messiah is going to be, which line he will come through, so that we can trace that through history and know that we're not wrong 
And by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, it's really, really difficult to deny that he is the Messiah through everything that's been laid out in Scripture. And God doesn't skip the details. He's not teaching us how to live. You certainly shouldn't live the way anybody lived in these chapters. You shouldn't. But he is telling us a narrative that bears down through history that ultimately leads to Jesus. And all of these failures, all of this sin that lies within man's heart can be cured and healed through the sacrifice of Jesus. Because that's what the story is about. And that's where this thread is taking us to. Now we know why Amnon wasn't ended up, didn't end up as king. He was murdered by Absalom. Absalom didn't deserve the throne. And we'll learn more about why he didn't get it. And we'll find out why Solomon was chosen. And why the line takes that road. And how that points us closer and closer to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the difficulty of this story. God, I pray that we can walk away from this, knowing more about you, knowing more about your plan, uh, knowing more about your word. And God, I, I just pray that we can get closer to you even when we're dealing with difficult subject matter. In Jesus' name, amen.